Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge, especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Road. Today, you guys get to hear from Erin Gordon, who is not only a self-published author, but she has these amazing sort of stories about where she came from as a journalist, as an attorney, but also that she has a pen name and she's writing this other genre of fiction. So I'm excited to unpack this with you guys because I think for many of you, this self-publishing question is a big one. And hearing from Erin, I know is going to give us uh, all kinds of insight. Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to chat with you. I know. I'm ready to get into this. Just for fun, before we get into your story, I just want everyone to know there is a book that Erin wrote, and we're going to unpack this more later, called Peeps. And that book is about the journey of a woman in midlife who has a podcast. So there's all kinds of meta stuff going mm-hmm, on here. Mm-hmm. And as you guys listen to Erin telling her own story, I think you'll start to see how that perhaps informed Peeps. Um, anyway, so let's back up. When did you start writing fiction? I've always been a voracious reader. I was the kind of kid who, you know, my Judy Bloom books, the pages were falling out because I read them so aggressively. So I've always loved story and loved reading. I think I started writing novels and short stories in my 20s. None of them were good at all. (laughs) But that's when I kind of started to practice this craft. I didn't start publishing until later, but I gave it a try almost 30 years ago, probably my my mid-20s. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to your mid-20s for a second. Mm -hmm. You did not start your career thinking, I'm going to be a fiction writer. So give us that background of going to law school and all that. Right. Okay. So I always did love to write. 
you know, my good grades could always be traced to my writing skills. Um, I was not a STEM kid. I was definitely a humanities kid. So when I was in college as a political science major, I was like, what can I do with writing? And there were kind of two roads. You can, you know, be a journalist or, I mean, at the time, this was back in the 80s, right? Journalist or lawyer. And I'm kind of a risk averse person and law seemed to be a more like prescribed path. You know, you go to law school, you get these summer jobs, you go to a law firm. So that's what I did. I went right from college to law school and uh, quickly discovered that the writing you do in law is not at all creative or for me fulfilling. And I also had kind of a rotten time in the law. I practiced for three years. And in fact, my latest manuscript is actually a memoir about my first year as a lawyer, which was a year filled with sexual harassment and workplace bullying and a lot of stuff that I'm only now 30 years later able to kind of write about. So then I was in the profession for three years and then went back to school and got a master's in journalism. So kind of a roundabout way to continue my writing in a a way that was sort of more in line with my sensibilities and personality. So for a long time, I was a legal affairs journalist, which was a great job. Um, Worked for a newspaper. San Francisco at the time, was, which is where I am, was the only city in the country at the time that had two competing daily legal newspapers. So it was a really fun job. I had a competitor. We were always trying to scoop each other. I really loved that job and I loved being a journalist. And then I started having babies and went freelance. And so I was a freelance legal affairs journalist for years and years and years. I was writing fiction on the side. And then in the last like four or five years, I've kind of shifted the balance. So now I'm doing a lot less magazine work and a lot more fiction writing. So that's kind of the capsule summary of how I got to where I am. It's a good one. I'm sorry to hear about, not that you didn't like the law. My husband is a recovering attorney as well. So I understand. But just what you had to endure, it sounds like, in those three years outside of what typical first years have to endure. And Mm -hmm. and I'm glad to hear that you're writing about it. I'm sure that's cathartic for you and will be for many of those who read it. Yeah, thank you. I think it's interesting that you went through the law school years to get to doing what you wanted to do. As somebody who has a daughter in college who is also considering journalism. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how you almost have to find out what you don't want to do and go down that road to have the freedom to identify what you do want to do. Do you think that was part of it for you? Oh, 100%. I mean, putting aside the gender violence and things that I dealt with, I did learn that hierarchical structure of a law firm really wasn't for me. And then I'm actually a much better independent worker, you know, running kind of my own business Mm -hmm. was just much more in line with my personality. And so I too have kids in college and, you know, I encourage them to try things because finding out what you don't like informs what you do like, and you might not figure out what you do like until you're in an environment that shows you that you don't want to continue down that road. So I don't regret going to law school. It really enhanced my journalism work and even my fiction writing. You know, I'm very disciplined. I learned to be a strong critical thinker. Yeah. I made a lot of friends, you know, all those yeah. benefits. 
Uh, so I don't regret it. It just didn't quite turn out the way I expected. Yeah. I point that out because I think, you know, this podcast is focused on women over 40, kind of our midlife. Now, what do we do? What mm-hmm. have we done? What did we like about what we've done? What did we not like? How do we move forward? And in telling these stories, I think it's important that we pay attention to the things that we could look at or view as hiccups, mistakes, wrong turns. It's called Liberty Road for a reason. <laughs> it's a journey. Yeah, yeah, it's a journey. And I think that's that's the piece of it that we want to embrace versus the destination. As cliche as it sounds, I think when we can kind of wrap our arms around that, it gives us freedom to make decisions that we wouldn't ordinarily make. I think our kids have a different mindset, which is great. I think there's a willingness to try new things. They don't expect to be doing anything for 25 years and getting a gold watch at the end of it. That's not right. That's not in their sort of purview. I also think it's important because, and I'm going to ask you this question later, so we'll, we'll, we'll save it. But I think for our listeners who think that they've somehow expired in trying something new, those days are over. It's actually all the things we've learned up until now about what we don't want to do. And we do want to do that make us so well equipped to make a decision about how we want to spend this middle third, as I call it. Yes. And as you referenced in the beginning of the interview, that's a lot of what Peeps, the book Peeps I wrote is about. So we can talk about that when we turn to that topic. We're very aligned, it sounds like, in our thinking about this age. That's why I wanted to call it out in the beginning of the interview, because I thought it would be fun for our listener to have that in mind as they were listening Mm -hmm. to your own story. So you go from being an attorney to being a journalist to now, as you've said, you're sort of swapping your workload Mm -hmm. to doing less of that and really focusing on your work as an author. Tell us a little bit about that first book. And you've written lots of things that didn't get published as you talked about. So let's talk about the first book that was actually published. What was that process like? I wrote that book, I think, towards my mid to late 30s. And, you know, when you're kind of approaching 40 and you kind of realize, if I want to be an author, I need to write a book, right? You know, if I want to be a novelist, I need to write a novel. So this is the first one I published. It's, It's called Cheer. And this was triggered by something that a friend said to me when I was in college. We were at a football game and she whispered something to me about one of the cheerleaders that we were watching at the football game who she happened to have gone to high school with. And she told me something. I remember thinking, wow, that would be an amazing novel. So that was like when I was like 20 or something. And I just filed it away. And as I mentioned, you know, I wrote some things in my 20s that were kind of not very good, but they were, you know, practice. And so when I started to get serious in my, you know, mid to late 30s, I really just went back to that comment and thinking like, how can I make that into a book? And at that time, I was, you know, deep into my freelance journalism career. As I mentioned, I'm very disciplined. So I just sort of added it to my daily list of tasks. So whether it was like, you know, interview this person for this story, edit this magazine story, you know, blah, blah, blah. The next on the list was like, write scene one of chapter three or whatever of this book. So it was just on my list. Uh, So I wrote it and 
then went through the process of trying to get an agent, which is something we can certainly talk about yeah. more in depth because you were asking about self-publishing. But um, I ultimately ended up self-publishing. And that was right at the time when, you know, for so long, self-publishing was kind of something that nobody really did or people look down on it. But, yeah. you know, when Kindle came out and Amazon opened it up where writers could publish their own works, it really just exploded. And then all kinds of like cottage industries started popping up like, you know, freelance editors who could look at independent authors or cover designers or whatever. So I ended up self-publishing it. And that was the first of four women's fiction novels that I self-published. I have a question about the discipline piece. Mm -hmm. For those who are less disciplined, <laughs> do you have a recommendation to create an outline, what the chapters might be? Is it spending two hours a day just writing, just getting thoughts out of your head and then pulling out what's good and what's not or where you can go from there with the story. Like as somebody who's not done this at all, what mm -hmm. are some of the things that helped you outside of the discipline of this is the time period I'm going to do this and this is exactly what I'm going to write about? Mm -hmm. What are the things creatively, any mechanisms that you used to help you get the story out? Yeah. And I actually have a lot of thoughts about this and I've done classes and things for people on this I liken it to say exercise where let's say you hear of a friend who, you know, runs five miles every morning at 5.30 AM and that's how they get their exercise and you give it a try and it just, that just doesn't work for you. But maybe what works for you is to go swimming three times a week for a half an hour at night, right? So mm -hmm. you're still getting exercise. So I guess my biggest advice would be to know yourself in the writing world. There's sort of two kinds of people. There's what they call plotters and pantsers, which is fly by the seat of your pants. And mm -hmm. I am most definitely a plotter where my outlines are literally 60 pages long. It takes me longer to work on the outline and complete the outline than it does to actually write the book because my outlines are so detailed. So when I sit down to write a scene, I already know what's going to happen, what the character is going to smell, hear, taste, what the conflict is, you know, how it's going to resolve. That is my process is to just outline the crap out of it before I even yeah. sit down to write. But I don't presume to tell anyone that that's what they should do because some people are much better at just sitting down and pantsing, flying by the seat of your pants and just seeing where the characters take you. I wish that was me, but it's not. So know yourself. Is it going to be constricting to have an outline or is it going to be liberating? And there's lots of ways to build in discipline. If you're not a disciplined person, there are things like the Pomodoro method. I don't know if you're familiar uh -huh. with that. Uh, oh yeah. Where you set a timer and you say, I'm going to write for 15 minutes. And and that's a, a manageable chunk for a lot of people who get overwhelmed by the thought of sitting down and writing a whole chapter. There's also accountability groups. I mean, there are even, uh, I've never done this, but there are, you can have a writing partner that you don't know online. There's like mm -hmm. websites, mm -hmm. right? So if you need that outer accountability, find it and do it and then make that work for you. So I happen to know after all these years, kind of what works for me, but I don't want to prescribe something for someone else because it may not work for that person. Yeah. I liked your um, exercise analogy because I think we can all figure out, oh yeah, I'm definitely not 
I'm mm-hmm. not the five o'clock in the morning runner. Right. So what am I that that accomplishes the same end mm-hmm. goal? Mm-hmm. You mentioned the writing partner. Did you have any sort of outside encouragement? Did you have somebody that you would, hey, check out this latest chapter or even just the camaraderie of other authors and, you know, lamenting uh, how much time you spend alone mm-hmm. or in front of a computer or whatever. Was that a part of your journey? So I 100% endorse writing partners, writing groups. I don't have one in the writing process. Mm-hmm. I think because as I got my start in this, you know, I was working as a journalist. I had little kids I had to pick up from school and it was just another mm-hmm. kind of obligation that I didn't um, need because I was already pretty disciplined. However, I have a cadre of amazing friends who are avid readers. Some of them are professional writers themselves who are my beta readers and who are honest and they give me amazing feedback. And so I have a group of people that I turn to, which is especially important when you're self-publishing. I turn to them once I've completed a first or second draft, and then I get their feedback. And I tend to do it sequentially. So I have kind of my my first people that I reach out to for more big picture stuff. And then I have other people that like down the road, they're more nitty gritty after mm-hmm. I've made the initial revisions. I'm just lucky that I have, you know, great friends who are willing to help. But there, again, there's so many ways, particularly now online, where you can find people that can be your writing group, your writing partner, your person you trade pages with. I just tend to do it after the the first draft. How do you protect the errandness in all of it. Like when you're getting all of that feedback, I imagine that can be really hard, especially if it's, uh, you know, affecting the character or the plot or something that Mm -hmm. is inherent to the story that you're telling. How do you decide, okay, well, this is sacred and no one can edit this out. And this is good advice Mm -hmm. for the potential reader. That's interesting because I happen to have a, a very active side hustle where I help kids who are applying to college or grad school, working on their personal statements and, you know, essays for applications. And I mean, my primary goal is to preserve their voice. You know, I mean, I give suggestions, I make suggested changes, but the goal is to preserve what, who they are and what they want to say. And that's kind of the question you're asking me. And so I'm the writer, right? So I get to say yes or no. Of course, there have been times when someone says, I think you should take this out or add this in, or I wanted more of this, or I didn't like the way you did that. And so it's up to me to decide yes or no. What I do find is if I give it to six people and four or five of them or more have the same comment, then even if it feels like against my, you know, constitution, I will probably make that change. But if it's, you know, one out of six who wanted something to be different, then I just kind of keep with what I feel I was going for. And all of these people in my case that have read my stuff have read a lot of my stuff. And so I think they're able to make comments that allow me to preserve the errandness as you said. Yeah. What a nice support system you've created for yourself. And and my guess is usually people have that because they are that to others. Mm. So you probably are that to some people I hope so. in your life. I am sure of it. <laughs> there's, there's few things that you know in life to be true, especially at this age. Mm-hmm. And that is usually one of them. When people 
boast about the network of support they have. It's usually because they themselves are are that person for others. Well, I hope you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I betcha. <laughs> I put money on it. Thanks. So you also have this other genre, and I talked about it uh, a bit ago, that's unique to the four books that you talked about. And it is the romance mm-hmm. genre. Right. And in that genre, you are not Aaron Gordon. Right. You have another name. Right. So tell us about that pen name and why should we have a pen name and yeah. why you chose to do that? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So just to kind of like differentiate. So I showed you Cheer. This is under yeah. my name. This was the second one, Heads or Tails. And if you can kind of see, they all kind of have a look to them. Yes. This is Beshert. And then this is Peeps, which maybe we'll talk yeah. about. Those are the women's fiction book club books that are under my name. When I got interested in writing romance, I did a deep, deep, deep dive into the genre, which, you know, you may or may not know is like the biggest selling genre of all publishing. I mean, romance readers are unbelievably voracious. I mean, a lot of them read a book a day Hmm. and they love series. They love staying with characters or a town. And there are certain tropes and certain conventions in romance that you have to have. Um, most notably, you have to have a happily ever after or a happily for now <laughs> is what they call it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't use a pen name because I'm embarrassed about the romance novels or anything like that. Right. I realized that if someone read a romance novel that I wrote and then they are like, oh, I really like this. I want to read more from this author. And then they go back and they read like Peeps, for example, which is about right. a middle-aged podcaster on a road trip. Right. They're like, wah, wah. yeah, they're like, <laughs> yeah. I don't get this. So <laughs> yeah. basically it's for the reader to be able to differentiate. So I'll show you because I love my cover so much. So as a romance writer, I'm Jenna Starley. <laughs> I love it. This is Summer Sky and this is Autumn Sky. Aren't they cute? They are so cute. And I love that they're not traditional, like I'm not a romance novel reader yet. Maybe I'll, I will yeah. become one now. <laughs> but um, they're very different from the Fabio right. man on a horse with his shirt ripped yes. and his chest. You know, it's very different than that. Right. And those those are very popular. And yeah. those covers draw a lot of readers but the cartoon, or I should say the, like the illustrated cover. Yeah. What I wanted to do with that is the Fabio covers tend to imply there's a lot of spicy themes. Yeah. 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 And mine have like one, one and a half spicy scenes, but not like super graphic. And I thought that the illustrated cover gave me a little more leeway in terms of how I wanted to be on the spicy scale and they're very kind of trendy. So I went that direction for those covers and that has been really fun. I've kind of gotten, got to explore a whole new world of readers and um, it's just an incredibly active, engaged group of readers. Who knew? Did you know that? Well, I mean, you did your research, yeah, did obviously, research. to go into yeah. it. Yeah. And so, um, again, I, I learned that romance readers love to follow a family. So this series is about three sisters. They love to be in a, in the same setting. And so this is in a 
fictional town called Lake Lila, which is based mm-hmm. on Lake Tahoe, where I spend a lot of time and which is different in every season. So that's summer, autumn, winter, you know? Yeah. So like if you're in the mood for a cozy autumn read, then autumn sky is a great read for, you know what I mean? Yeah. And there, there are certain tropes in romance that are, they tend to be trendy. They go up and down. Like there's enemies to lovers and there's, you know, fake dating. And it was really fun to research and to learn what readers are interested in and um, to just see such an engaged group of readers. So it was fun. It has a, and I don't mean this in a diminishing way, just in a like, okay, this sort of makes sense. It has a soap opera meets Netflix kind of thing, right? The veracity of the Netflix watcher who's just like downloading everything within, you know, six episodes of whatever, because they're so in love with the characters. Mm -hmm. But then this ongoing soap opera telling mechanism, I guess, right in writing in a more like sophisticated, I guess, form. Yeah, I agree. Oh, that's so funny. Who knew? And where did the name Jenna Starley come from? You know, I've always loved the name Jenna. And so I thought I'd start with that. And then I just wanted something a little flirty and a little eye-catching. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. It just came to me in the shower one day. So that's how I got that. I love it. There is something like 1950s starlet about it. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. It has that kind of quality. Exactly. You use the term and I read it in your bio as well. And I was like, is this the first time I'm hearing this term? But book club fiction, what is right. the difference between book club fiction and fiction? That's a great question. And one that I'm still kind of parsing out myself, um, trying to figure out how to exactly slot my books into a genre. So actually, I think they're more accurately described as women's fiction. Mm-hmm. But I also don't really like that term because a lot of men have read my books and like them. And I feel like also the industry kind of diminishes women in a way that I just don't support. So I've kind of started shifting to book club fiction, but they're, to me, they're kind of one and the same, but it's basically commercial fiction that fears a little literary and that you could have a discussion about, right? So there's commercial fiction, like a thriller or something that's fun and fast paced, but you couldn't really sit down and have an hour long conversation with your friends about it because it's fun and it's a great read, but it's not, it's not that deep. Right. Whereas um, women's fiction, book club fiction, there's some meat there where you can say, well, what would I have done in that Mm -hmm. situation? Or gee, you know, she's experiencing something that I've never heard of before, or gosh, that kept me up at night thinking about that situation that she was in or something like that. You know, those kinds of books that maybe have, you know, questions at the end, you know, questions for discussion. To me, that's that's a book club book. You know, it's not high literature, right? But it's also not, there's some depth there beyond like a thriller, not to disparage thrillers in yeah, any way, but yeah. just there's some meat there, I guess. That's a long answer. Sorry. No, it's a great answer. <laughs> and I love that intentionally or otherwise that it, the book is almost meant to be consumed in community. Like you're mm-hmm. designing it in a way that brings people together to consider the character, how the character relates to them, doesn't relate to them. They might want it to relate to them. They might want to live something that's a parallel 
to the characters that you've created. So I appreciate the explanation and I'm sort of like, oh, I want to be a part of that. Yeah. I want to unpack that with other people who are going to read it from a different lens or going to experience Mm -hmm. it from a different lens. So really quickly, I know it's four books and I want to spend Mm -hmm. a little more time on Peeps, but tell us a little bit about Cheers, Heads or Tails, Bichert. Yeah. And I realize that I've been showing the books and, you know, not everybody's going to see this on YouTube, but, you know, hopefully they can click on Amazon or something. We will have everything in the show notes so people can go to the specific books for sure. Great. And I do, by the way, I have two separate websites, one for Aaron Gordon and one for Jenna. And I love your comment about consuming in community Love that. And I do a lot of book clubs. I appear at a lot of book clubs, you know, a lot by Zoom. I've talked to book clubs across the country and it's so fun to see people have questions and thoughts about characters that I've created. And I just love the way you phrase that. But yes, very quickly. So we talked about cheer. This was the, the first one that was inspired by something that somebody told me at a college football game. And it's basically about a little family um, set in Marin County and how they're recovering from a tragedy. Okay. And it's told from three perspectives. And I wrote that you'll see that all of these books are about something I was kind of personally exploring and, and writing the book was a way for me to work through it. So this is a lot about parenthood. And I was kind of a new mom around this time. And, you know, being a parent is so vulnerable. Yeah. So I explored a lot of that in cheer. And then the second book is Heads or Tails. This is set in San Francisco and a little bit in New York, this was also inspired by something that a friend said to me where she said something and I was like, oh, what if she said the opposite? Right. You know, I was like, there's a book there. And this is a book largely about friendship. And that was in my early 40s when my friendships were changing. You know, you have these college friends and then you are in different stages of your life. And they're still very dear to you, but you don't see them as often and et cetera, et cetera. So Heads or Tails is about friendship okay. set in San Francisco. But shared, it's actually kind of a modern romance, not quite in the vein of the Jenna Starley books, but it's set in Israel and it's about a Christian American woman and a secular Israeli man and they fall in love. And it sort of explores themes of faith. And this was inspired because at the time I wrote this, I was really trying to nail down what I believed Mm. in and what faith meant to me. And I was, and basically still am an atheist, but I really wished that I believed in something. And so that's where, what I explored in Besher. And then there's Peeps, um, which is a book about well, we can talk more about it, but it's it's basically about middle age. And it's sort of what I was talking about with all my friends when we would go out to dinner and this new phase of life we were in. And so that book is basically about that. Okay. Let's just unpack that because we keep saying, yeah. we're going to talk about it. One of the things I heard you say in another interview that you gave, you talked about The Wizard of Oz and Wild being mm-hmm. essentially the same story. And that these journey stories, I think is is how you phrased it. It was kind of the vein that you wanted to write peeps in. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for those who know both of those stories, I think we can draw that parallel. But I'd love for you to 
give us your insight into what do you mean by journey story? How is it that you find these two stories so similar? And what is it that Mm -hmm. you wanted to accomplish in Peeps? Yeah, great questions. So Peeps started a couple of different ways. One is I'm obsessed with RVs and van life and like all my YouTube viewing is van conversions (laughs) and people who live in their vans and travel the country. And I don't know what made me so drawn to it, but I was just kind of obsessed. And I thought it'd be really fun to write a story about somebody who lived that life, which is basically a journey story. And so I thought, okay, what are some model journey stories? Well, Wizard of Oz was the first one that popped into my head. And then I thought about Wild by Cheryl Strayed. So I sort of was like reverse engineering them and thinking, okay, what are these stories really about? I realized they're the exact same story. One is a young girl and one is a young woman. And they go on a road. In one case, it's the Yellow Brick Road. And in the other case, it's the Pacific Crest Trail. And they're basically on a journey, like a physical journey, but also a metaphorical journey to find out who they are and find out their place in the world. And along the way, they meet different people who help them understand themselves and help them complete their journey. And I was just so charmed by that whole idea of them being the same story. And I thought, well, I want to write the next one, which is basically, it's not a young girl, not a young woman. It's a middle-aged woman. And the road she takes is like the interstate, basically. And so I was like, okay, how can she meet people along the way? The way, you know, Cheryl Strayed met people or Dorothy met people. And this dovetailed with another interest of mine, which was podcasting. I am not a podcaster, but I just think people are fascinating. And I always wanted to hear a podcast kind of like fresh air, but for ordinary people, you know, just like regular people because I find regular people really fascinating. And I thought maybe my character can be a podcaster and she's interviewing people on her journey from the West Coast to the East Coast. And there's a separate kind of external motivation for why she needs to travel from the West Coast to the East Coast. It has to do with her family. So combining my dream podcast that I wish I could listen to, I gave that to my character. And then that enabled her to like meet these special people along the way and just learn her place in the world the way Dorothy and Cheryl did. First of all, I I love that premise. And I think most of our listeners will love that premise because I think it's something that they're trying to figure out in the the metaphor of the van and the journey. Mm -hmm. And even the interviews, I think, is something that resides somewhere inside all of us where we just, we want to be learning more and listening to more stories and Mm -hmm. meeting people that impact us in a new way. Yeah. As you were writing this and as you were probably identifying with that main character, what did you learn about your own midlife or midlife in general? Like what discoveries came up for you? Right. So as I mentioned A lot of this came from discussions I was having with my girlfriends at dinners, which I'm sure you've had the same discussions and your listeners have too, which is, okay, we're in our late 40s, our 50s, and a lot of our life is set. We've had our careers, we've had our children, perhaps. Are we going to keep going in the same direction? Or are we going to make a right turn? Is there still a possibility of 
something totally new and different Mm -hmm. happening to us or at our own initiative? Can we shift our direction? Do we want to? We still have a lot of life left in us. You know, maybe that's why I I watch so many of these van videos. Maybe it's like my fantasy self thinking, oh, you know, I don't have a house in San Francisco. I am off the grid, you know, just imagining what else your life could be. And so I guess what I learned is that um, this question, I think, is kind of universal for people at this age Mm -hmm. and that we still have a lot of what's agency, I guess, is the word. Um, We don't have to just drift in the same direction that we've been going. We can if it's what we want, but we also are young enough and have enough fortitude to shift directions if that's something we want to do. Yeah. And to go back to your earlier learning, we've identified what we don't want to do. We know what Mm -hmm. we do want to do. And so we're in a really unique place. We have more connections. For many of us, we probably are more financially secure than we were in those early years. So it's a great time to to really, you know, over here at Liberty Road, we say, consider your possibilities. And it's, I think, a lot of what the journey of your main character was was on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So having just said that, And let me just say one other very random thing. I don't know how many of you saw, I can't recall her name right now, but it was a video on both TikTok and Instagram that went viral. And it was a woman that I want to say was like 101. She was an African-American woman. And she was talking about her life. And the two marriages were just, she had outlived both husbands They were just parts of her story. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's a wilderness, um, what do you call like a forest ranger? Like a ranger? Yes, she's a forest Uh ranger. Uh And I remember listening to that, you know, 90 second piece. I'll try and find it and put it out on our Instagram so people can reference it. But she just kept talking about her life as all of these chapters. And when I was listening to her, I was like, Oh my gosh, according to her, I'm like in chapter three. Right, right. There's all this other time. But it's also met with, at this age, we've seen some loss and we've seen friends who don't have those choices to make for Mm -hmm. a variety of reasons. And there's this weird tension of we have so much time and time is fleeting and tomorrow is not promised. And that feels like a downer and like, okay, Netta, why are you bringing that up? But I bring it up to say it makes the decisions that we're making at this point so much more precious and the impact of those decisions to have a deeper impression on our lives. Mm -hmm. And so I want people to be thinking that. I don't want to just put out content on our website or on our social media or Mm -hmm. anything that's just like, you can do it. Yes, you can. And we, we believe that you can, but you can't be anything you want to be. We've figured that out. Like Mm -hmm. I can't be an NBA player, no matter what I do. Right. Right. I can't. And my days are, they are numbered, but that just means that I have to be more intentional about the decisions I make. And there's something beautiful about that, about the sky not being the limit. Yeah. I love what you're saying. And I have kind of two thoughts about it. First of all, there's an element of privilege Mm -hmm. too, that I think as I've gotten older, I have 
I've strived to explore. Mm -hmm. It's often people with privilege who have the opportunity to make these big shifts. And if you or I or anyone can, we should also see what we can do to help people who are not privileged to live up to their potential and make exciting changes. I don't know how that looks, but I I love to be mindful of people who aren't as privileged. And the second thing I will say is, you know, you said like, you can't be an NBA player. You know, I'm not going to be a ballerina or whatever, but that was a big struggle. And I'm still struggling with it in terms of traditional publishing versus Mm. self-publishing because, you know, we can go into it if you want or, or not, but Every single book, particularly Peeps, I got like this close to an agent and I'm experiencing the exact same thing with this memoir that I've just finished about my first year as a lawyer with the sexual harassment and everything where, you know, I'm just butting up against the gatekeepers Mm -hmm. of the publishing industry. And so there are limitations, right? Like, yes, I can write a book and I can make shifts and I can do less magazine work and I can do more fiction writing, but it doesn't mean that I'm in charge of everything and yeah. that I can make anything happen. There's some grief, I think, to deal with at this age as well when you have goals that you you can't necessarily achieve no matter how hard you try and to honor that experience mm-hmm. as well. So those are kind of just two, two side thoughts to what you just said. Thank you for them. I think there's an importance to being sober (laughs) as we go into all of our endeavors. And that doesn't mean that we lack hope. I am a glass half full person, 100%. And it sometimes gets me in trouble. And it sometimes is, you know, it provides whatever sustenance I need to make the crazy decisions I make. But I do think that we know enough to go into whatever's next in, in this sort of sober way. I also so appreciate your comment about privilege. And you know, we've said it on this podcast a lot of times. I know when I'm interviewing women that our listener is not always in the same position of this woman that we're hoping she'll be inspired by and follow in her footsteps if that's for them. And we often talk about if you are in a position of privilege, then there's a duty and a responsibility that you have. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you get to lean back. My worldview is such that I don't believe you get to lean into it and rest into it, that it actually Mm -hmm. comes with responsibility. So thank you for saying that. And yes, I do want to spend a minute unpacking the self-publishing world. Why do you think, and just a quick minute on that, and then I want to get into kind of the how you self-published, but why Mm -hmm. do you think there are those gatekeepers? Because it seems it used to be, I don't know, maybe 25 or more years ago, pre-self-publishing being so available, that getting a book published was not this uphill. Yeah, it was difficult for sure. It was not an easy thing to do. But now you have to have this massive platform. And that means they're not actually interested in the quality of the work. They're just interested in selling books to a lot of people. So if Mm -hmm. you're an influencer, no shade on influencers, just Mm -hmm. if you have this great following that you can write whatever. That's one thing. Two, that it seems that the gatekeepers are only looking for these commercial successes. Mm -hmm. And so we're only putting out content of one very narrow kind. Mm -hmm. And we're living in a world where so much content and so much media is being put out 
by the user, mm-hmm. by various users. And so we have this wealth of content available to us for better or worse. It's also a very noisy world. But why isn't publishing like following in those footsteps? Well, I think you just said it basically. It's that there's so much content out there. And I think the publishing industry is struggling. And so they have to really be chasing things that are going to be making a lot of money for them. I don't know all the numbers, but there's some statistics that, you know, very few books actually are the ones that are making money for publishers. Mm -hmm. They might publish, let's just use the number a hundred. Okay. That means obviously millions of times more than that, but they publish a hundred books. It's like three of them are the ones that make money. Those aren't the right numbers, but you get my idea. I think because people are consuming content elsewhere, whether it's podcasts, lucky for you, or, you know, Netflix or um, whatever, you know, magazines that you can get on your iPad. And so the publishing industry is struggling. And what I have noticed is that they are chasing trends. So if something hits like the Hunger Games or 50 Mm -hmm. Shades of Grey or whatever, then everybody's chasing that. They're less willing to try something new. It's like, I can't tell you how many agents have said to me, I love your writing. I love your voice. I can't sell this. And they only get paid, you know, if they can sell the book. And so it would almost be easier for me if they said, I don't like your writing. And, but it's like to have somebody say, I like what you're doing, but I can't sell it because publishing houses are chasing the next whatever, whatever that it's so aggravating. You know, I wish I had an answer for me and for other aspiring writers out there. The only thing I can say is lucky for us, there's no more stigma in self-publishing. No. I mean, there are still a lot of hurdles. I mean, it's hard to get your book seen by a lot of people, especially like you said, if you don't have a big platform or whatever. So um, lots of challenges, but also lots of upsides to self-publishing. Let's talk about that for a quick minute. So you you literally have a book, you know, it's in your computer, you've written it, you Mm -hmm. print it out. So you Mm -hmm. have this manuscript of mm-hmm. X amount of pages. Do you go to Kinko's or FedEx or whatever it's called now? Like, what do you do? How do you take the next step? Mm-hmm. You talked earlier about freelance people who are editors, yeah. who are cover designers. I'm sure there's a whole binding industry and all of that. Yeah. Like, where do yeah. you go from there? Lots of cottage industries have emerged, which is great. One of the downsides of self-publishing is that if you want to take advantage of all of these experts, you know, expert cover designer or editor or whatever costs money. So, you know, if an agent were to represent you, you don't have to pay them. They would sell your book. They would take a cut, but you don't have to pay anyone to publish. Yeah. So um, it depends on what your own skills are. There are some great companies where they can do everything for you. You know, you buy basically a package and they will get you a cover designer, they'll get you an editor, they'll get you a copy editor, a proofreader, they'll do some marketing for you, they'll distribute it, meaning they'll put it up, you know, on Amazon and put it in the what's Ingram, which is where booksellers, bookstores order their books from. And so or you can kind of do it a la carte, right, you can find somebody on different, you know, platforms. And, you know, let's say you know how to design a cover, you can do that not yourself, but you really needed an editor or something. So in my case, because as I mentioned, I have so many wonderful friends, many of whom are writers themselves, and I'm a a professional writer with a lot of experience. 
I don't hire editors, but somebody else might want to. I usually hire a cover designer and a distributor. And the other tricky thing is is marketing. Mm-hmm. As you said, it's very crowded. It's very noisy, really hard to get your book kind of rise above the din, so to speak. And so I approach my local independent bookstores. They've all been amazingly supportive. They will have me for readings, which is wonderful. So there's a lot out there online that can teach you how to follow these steps. Oh, there's also formatting. I should have said that as well. So formatting is like, let's say you just want to put a Kindle version up on Amazon. You have to have a special kind of file and there's some DIY formatting software, or you can hire a formatter. I mean, there's just all kinds of people that you can hire. It's just a matter of, you know, what do you want to do yourself? What can you afford to do? Also be careful of some scammers out there that are, you know, telling you they're going to make your book a bestseller. And I would be very skeptical of that. So it's a lot of steps, but there's a lot of information out there online where you can learn how to do it. Yeah. I would just add too on the marketing side that there are other industries that need your voice as an author. And so you talked about bookstores. Bookstores can't access those Fifty Shades of Grey type authors, right? The little bookstore in the middle of nowhere isn't going to get the opportunity to interview that person. And bookstores are desperate for people to come through their doors. Yep. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is on you to really reach out to other people mm-hmm. who are in your industry who need what you have to offer. And I'll speak for me as a podcaster. I want to hear from women who've written books. I want to tell your story. I want to inspire the listener to not only read your book, but also to follow in your footsteps if that's something that they Mm -hmm. so desire. So it's really putting that entrepreneurial hat on and saying, it's not enough to be a writer. Mm -hmm. You have Mm -hmm. to really start thinking about how you can distribute the idea of your story and the desire for your story so that they can buy the books, downloads, whatever. So I think that's a big piece of it for for people yeah, as well. That's right. And that's why, you know, the opportunity to come on a podcast like this is so wonderful. So thank you. Yeah. And also that marketing piece can be very uncomfortable for a writer, fiction or nonfiction, because as you pointed out before, you know, writing is often a very solitary thing and yeah. appeals to people who don't want to, you know, be look at me, look at me. But you have to be like that once you've got a completed manuscript. Um, And so again, if you can afford to hire somebody who can help you with that, it might make it more accessible. Yeah. I have to tell you a funny story. Well, you're a part of one of them. But the last two, you being number two, authors that I've interviewed, both came to me via a DM or an email from a friend and a husband. So you were recommended by a friend of yours to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the other author who did a hybrid publishing model that we interviewed, Mm -hmm. she came because her husband DM'd me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for all of those that are supporting cast of of writers, like, you know, you can help them do the marketing work as well. Well, I always say that to not even just people that you might know who are writers, but there are a lot of ways to support authors that you like, whether you know them or not. I mean, the first is buy their book, buy their book. That means so much. Leave a review on whatever platform, you know, whether it's Goodreads or Amazon or Barnes and Noble, or tell your local bookstore, because 
So many books are word of mouth and that's how they rise above. It really makes a difference if you can support any author you like, whether it's a traditionally published or self-published. It means so, so much. Yeah. Okay. That's a good word. Thank you for that. <laughs> so I want to harken back to something you said earlier when you were talking about you and your groups of friends talking and how that led to writing Peeps and the theme of it's too late or mm-hmm. really, can I start something new? Mm-hmm. What's your advice to a woman who might be struggling with that? Who's in your stage of life? I'm like you. I'm an optimist. I'm a glass half full. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I would try to encourage them to have that mindset. And if they don't, to find a way to um, nurture that mindset, because it's not going to happen to you. It has to come from you. And so you have to kind of believe in yourself and take that initiative to make shifts that you want to make. And, you know, when you're in your 40s and 50s, you have 50 plus years left. So, you know, don't be content just to drift if you're not if you're not happy believe in yourself and uh, nurture that you know i can do it mindset yeah we're going to take away that as a quotable it's not going to happen to you it's going to mm-hmm. happen from you is that what you said i guess that's what i said yeah that's or, brilliant yeah. thank you for that and what a great way to wrap up this portion of the podcast yeah. before you go we have our fast five. Right. So I'm going to ask you really quickly, what is a daily practice that keeps you grounded? Meditation. I know that sounds kind of like woo-woo or whatever, but I actually have like clinical anxiety and I'm. it's basically a prescription from my doctor. Yeah. I meditate 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes at night. And um, it's not something that's going to instantly affect you, but it's a cumulative thing. Mm. And over time, it has really helped me with anxiety. Um, been doing it for years. And so that's an important daily practice for me. It's almost like that physical exercise that you referenced at the beginning mm-hmm. of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And what are you as a published author currently reading? Oh gosh, I'm always reading all the time. Yeah. I usually an audio book going for when I walk my dog. I have a downstairs book. I have an upstairs <laughs> book. Like, I mean, I'm just always reading. Um, right now I'm reading, um, I'm not a big thriller reader, but uh-huh. I just saw Stacey Abrams speak the other night mm-hmm. and got her book, her second thriller. Uh, and she actually writes romance too. Oh, she does. Yeah. She writes romance under a pen name. She's remarkable. But um, so I'm reading her latest thriller and then and next on deck is, I don't know if you know Lisa C, Mm-mm. but she's a historical fiction writer and she has a brand new book about a woman in like 15th century China who was like a doctor. Oh, wow. So yeah, I can't wait. She's always very reliable. Her books are great. So that's that's next after Stacey Abrams. That's awesome. And I know you have a list of your favorite books on your website. Yes, I do. We'll link to that because I think that's fun mm-hmm. for people to to reference. Oh, thanks. Yeah. What is something that you're enjoying at this current stage of life that maybe it's it's a pleasant surprise? You didn't know that this was going to be something that you would be savoring. Yeah, I would say I have two kids in college. And although that has been a big adjustment to not be, you know, parenting, like in the grunt work of parenting day to day. I love having college kids. I love when they FaceTime me and you know, they're walking along campus and I get to hear about their days. I love visiting them. I love that they're adults and we share things that we enjoy. 
my son is now 21. I can go have a beer with my son. All right. That's yeah. awesome. So <laughs> with parenting, you know, I, I was never great with the babies and the toddlers. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, every stage has gotten better and better. And this stage is, I just love having college kids. So I don't know if that's necessarily linked to everybody's age, but for me at this age, that's something I'm really enjoying. Well, I'll call you offline because I am struggling with it. My daughter's 20. She's in her second year of college and my son just graduated high school and he's off to the East coast as well. And then I have one left. I have uh, one that's a rising sophomore, but it's tough. I have said, I think I mentioned it on the podcast. I'd gone to visit my daughter. She was studying abroad. And I came back feeling somewhat superfluous, not because she was in any way, you know, not including me or offensive. In fact, she was very happy to wine and dine me in all the places she couldn't afford (laughs) to enjoy until I got there. But it was just this very weird, you know, she was in Italy and speaking the language. So she was hailing cabs and getting us in and out of our Airbnbs and hotels and making reservations. And I was like, what the heck? This is what I do. It was a very hard flight home. I will say that. I just yesterday went on a walk with like five of my very close friends. And we talk a lot about these issues. We're all in the same stage of life. And there was a podcast recently with Kelly Corrigan, who was talking about this exact thing. And we were all coming at it from different angles. And what does it mean to um, parent adult children? And some of us liked certain parts and other people were really struggling and, you know, how can we structure our relationships with our kids so that they want to be with us as they launch appropriately into their own lives. Speaking of these uh, adult children, what would you say to 25 year olds, Aaron, about midlife or maybe even one of your children? Mm -hmm. Do you have a daughter? I do. I have a daughter and I have a son. Yeah. So what would you say to the daughter? What do you think you want her to know that she can expect as a woman who will one day live into her midlife years? Well, lucky for her, she's so much more Mm self-aware and just so much more mature than I was. You know, age 25 is really that time, you know, hearkening back to the beginning of the podcast when I said that my latest manuscript was about, was a memoir about my first year as a lawyer that was very traumatic year. So, and that was 25. Mm. So it's kind of hard for me to say, I guess what I would say is that I would tell myself and I would tell my daughter that, you know, it's really true what they say that the older you get, like you have less less bucks to give. And it's really true. And I realize a lot of things I was striving for, you know, for many, many years, I don't want in on that anymore, you know, and there's um, a lot of freedom in realizing, do I really want that? No, I don't. So I I don't need to like claw my way towards that goal anymore, because I'm not that interested. And so self-awareness, she has it a lot earlier than I did, but um, I'd say the self-awareness that comes in midlife is a blessing. Yeah. And there's so much freedom in it. So much freedom in it. And how has the work that you've done as a self-published author specifically, not necessarily as a journalist, not necessarily as an attorney, but this work that you've been doing and the work that you continue to do in midlife, how has it liberated you, Erin, the woman? I really love stories. I really love, as I mentioned with my four women's fiction books, those were all things I was like personally exploring. Parenthood, friendship, faith, midlife, 
I'm so grateful that I can use story as a way to explore those topics. And I love working for myself. I love working from home. So yeah, I guess that's my my answer to that. It has really um, enabled me to, to structure a life that really works for me. Thank you so much, Erin, for sharing so much of your journey, um, the work that you've done, what it's meant to you, how you came up with these beautiful pieces, and how, in the end, it's liberated you. I think, as I've said before, that for our listener, I think it's really key for them to be able to see what's possible for them and then how, right? It's not enough to Mm -hmm. just say, you can do it, but like, here's some tools. Let's equip you in this process. And thanks for being so good at doing that. I appreciate it so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you for this opportunity. I am so grateful. I think what you're doing for for women, for listeners, for people of our age and generation is a huge service. And again, thank you as a self-published author to have the opportunity to talk about my work on a platform like this is really a gift. So thank you for the opportunity. I love talking with you. I feel like we could go have a cup of coffee and talk for, for sure. three hours. Yeah, that may actually happen one day. I'll have to make my way up north. Good. I hope so. Thank you. Thanks for your time. It's so appreciated. And Liberty listeners, thank you guys. Thanks for hanging out with Erin. We will have everything she mentioned today, access to her reading list that I mentioned, both of her websites, and please go go buy these books, Peeps in particular. We will be back with you guys next week. Take care for now. Bye. Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms. Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcast and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to move into your middle third with intention. Liberty Road is created by executive producer Netta Jones, supervising producer Elizabeth Windham, Producer, Julia Windham, and music by Jack Jones. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 